Good morning, everyone. Especially a warm welcome to any new visitors. I saw a couple of you in the midst, so welcome. Uh, before we come to God's Word, let's pray. Lord God, we're here to hear. Lord, we know your Word is alive, living, and is transformative. And we come to hear and to understand your Word, our life is changed. And God, we also know that your Spirit is important. Your Spirit applies the truth in your Word in our life. So at this moment, as we come to your Word, teach us yourself. Unclog our ears, soften our heart, quicken our conscience so we can hear. Praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, so today we are looking at the Christian vision for the second of the three pairs of relationships in the so-called Christian household code passage in Ephesians 5 and 6. But before we dive into the text, we need to track back a little to look at the wider context to understand what this passage is really dealing with here. If you have your Bible with you, click to Ephesians uh, chapter 1, and we can uh, just go with me. The book of Ephesians is literally well organized. The six chapters can be neatly divided into two equal parts. The first half is a, is a theological masterpiece and laid a solid foundation for what all that follows. And Paul emphasizes here the absolute centrality of the grace of God in making spiritually dead people alive. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So the Christians are called to be a grace-centered people. The Christian life is a grace-centered life. And then the following three chapters are full of concrete applications based on this grace theology. There are six therefores in here. Starting with chapter 4, verse 1, the very first verse of the second half, it says, Therefore, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So basically, Paul is saying that now that you are saved by grace into a new life, live, therefore, live a worthy life, a life with many practical implications. And then we get to the end of chapter 5, just before our household code passage. Here, Paul emphasizes another key dimension of Christian life, often ignored one, neglected by us. That is the necessity of being spirit-filled. Chapter 5, verse 18 says, Don't get drunk with wine, you people of Santo Otago, but be filled with the Spirit. And then immediately, Paul uses four verbs to list some examples of the consequences of being filled with the Spirit. Speaking psalms with, another, with one another, singing and making music, giving thanks, and submitting to one another. Verse 21 is a hinge verse in this context that connects what proceeds and what follows. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reference for Christ, for God. See, submitting is a sign of being filled with the Spirit. Only when we are filled with the Spirit, submission is natural and easy. You agree? 
So Christian submission first starts in the home. Everything that's written in the path in, in, in the household code passage is written against this backdrop. That is, Christians are called to lead a life of grace-centered, spirit-filled life. So keep this at the back of your mind as we approach the text now. Our text begins. I'm not very good at clicking <laughs> the slides, am I? Grace-centered, spirit-filled, that's the thing I want you to remember. So our text begins with, a with children's submission to their parents, verses 1 and 3. And this is summarized by two verbs, obey and honor. First obey, or more accurately, to obey in the Lord. The much more shorter parallel passage in Colossians 3 that Sandra just read says to obey your parents in everything. So if you put these two statements together, you get what Paul was trying to convey in four, and that is to obey the law, obey your parents in everything in the Lord. And this means two things. First, God has vested authority in the parents to be agents of his authority in the home. So children are to submit to their parents' authority as if submitting to God's own. But this obedience is not a blind, thoughtless obedience. Children's, children's submission does have a limit, a boundary. Their obedience to their parents is to be in the Lord. And that means if and when the parent's authority does not reflect God's way or God's will, say if the parents ask the children to steal because the family is poor in the store, the children are to take the courage to refuse and suffer the consequences meekly. And the reason for obedience is simply that it is right. It is right in God's economy. It is God's design for the family. It is so that the family and the wider society can both flourish. You see, God has the ultimate authority of all creation, and it is pleasing to him to endow limited authority to human agents. God was his agents on earth to bring order, justice, and flourishing at all levels of society, from the international and the national leadership to the parental authority in the family unit. But we humans are bent to misuse and abuse our power, don't we? Have you seen that before? That is, when these human authorities go against God, the people of God are required to disobey courageously and to demonstrate their sole allegiance to God. The second verb is honor. If to obey speaks of actions, then to honor touches upon attitudes and disposition. We all know that we can obey someone externally without a respectful attitude toward him or her, don't we? But to honor someone, however, means to respect, admire, love, and praise them publicly. So this is what God requires of children, not only to obey in their action, but more importantly, to honor their parents with the right attitude of love and respect. You see, our inward attitude determines the authenticity of our actions. And that is why honoring your father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments given by God to the Israelites at Sinai. It is a commandment with a promise of twofold blessing. When children continue to honor their parents, life 
may go well with them, and they may live a long life on earth. You see? Because in general, a life of obedience and respect for authorities is conducive to our health, longevity, and dignity. But a life of rebellion and recklessness causes chaos and trouble. And at times, it ends life prematurely. So this is only life's common wisdom. The exceptions only prove the rule. Now, we should look no further than the very life of Jesus in this regard of submission to one's parents. Before the, between the four gospel books, we don't get too much information about Jesus' pre-adulthood life. But there's a case in point recorded in, chap in Luke chapter 2. You know the story? It happened when Jesus was 12 years old. As it was the custom, Jesus' parents took him to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover festival, like thousands of other Jewish families at the time. When the festival was over, Jesus somehow chose to stay behind in Jerusalem without telling his parents. He wasn't there to party his heart out or doing anything bad. But it was still not a very obedient thing to do for him. And it took his parents three days eventually to find him in the temple courts, listening to and talking with the religious leaders, the teachers. And Luke chapter 2 says this. When they saw him, that's Mary and Joseph, saw Jesus, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Jesus, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and, and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house, referring to God, the temple? But they didn't understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Did you get the point? Jesus disobeyed his parents in this instance only because he felt strongly that he should remain in worshiping and learning in his heavenly father's house in Jerusalem instead of going back to his parents' house in Nazareth. You see, Mary and Joseph could have chosen to stay in Jerusalem a little longer, but they did it. And Jesus' Jesus's desire for God triumphed his parents' decision to go home at the time they chose. But Jesus eventually went home with them to, to Nazareth, and the phrase, Jesus continued in subjection to them, clearly indicates that the young Jesus lived in willing submission to his parents through his early life. And now we come to the second part of this parent-child relationship. It is only one verse, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. First, a word about the word father in this verse. The original Greek word here could mean parents, both father and mother. In fact, the same word was used in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, regarding Moses. It says there that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. But nearly all major English Bibles, translations, that's your ESV, NIV, NASB, NRSV, New King James, have retained the word father in their translation. 
And the reason was twofold and justified, I think. One is cultural, the other is theological. First, culturally, the first century Greco-Roman society was a patriarchal society. As Douglas mentioned last Sunday, that the, the husband and father in that culture has the absolute authority over their wives, children, and slaves. So the, the word father was actually faithful to the original audience, original context. But remember, it is precisely this unbridled power of the patriarch at home that Paul is challenging in this passage. And secondly, theologically, the translation choice, the word father, is congruent with Paul's theology in New Testament. You see, the husband-father, in Paul's eyes, still should be the spiritual head of the family, not a domineering tyrant as condoned by their culture, but, but a Christ-like servant leader of their, of their wives and children. And in spiritual and religious matters in particular, it is the husband-father who takes the primary responsibility to lead the whole family closer to God. But this is not to say at all, hear me clear, that in their time and in our time, mothers do not or cannot contribute to the nurturing and the instructing of the children. They do. Even a cursory reading of the whole Bible will demonstrate that mothers play a significant role in children's life and spirituality. But in homes with both parents present, spiritual leadership lies with the father nonetheless. But what are fathers called to do then? Paul lists two imperatives here, a negative first, and then a positive. Negative, fathers are called not to exasperate their children. Other translations put it as not to provoke your children to anger. Again, the Colossians passage says, do not embitter your children. What a great word, embitter. Does anyone know this word before? I don't, I went to the dictionary. And it says, it means, embitter means making someone sad. English is my second language, by the way. Make, it means making someone sad, angry, or full of hatred because of the bad or unfair things that happen to them. Don't embitter your children. The negative cause here has to do with the use of a power that comes, with, that comes with authority. Because of the absolute authority given to them, the fathers in the Greco-Roman society were often inclined to become tyrannical domineering, or even abusive toward their children. But Christian fathers and mothers are called not to misuse their power. And this is a very radical counter-cultural call. Paul is calling Christian fathers to consider the desires and well-being of their children. They're not to subject their children to unreasonable demands or ungodly temper or their mood swings. Again, don't embitter your children. But more important, however, is the positive clause in here. Paul is saying, not only you shouldn't do that, but you should very much do this. It is to nurture your children in the training and instruction of the Lord. You see, this is much harder than the first one. Why? Because it requires modeling, intentionality, and perseverance. It requires modeling because children watch and imitate what we do. Do you agree? Uh, 
if we don't desire the Lord and take our faith seriously, do you think that our children won't notice? Do you think we can get away with it? We can tell them to do one thing and we ourselves do the opposite. Walk the walk, just, not just talk the talk. And this is where the parent's submission to the Lord comes into play. You see, unless we submit our lives to God daily, we are not going to model a good Christian life for our children. And besides modeling, it also takes intentionality and perseverance to train our children's faith. You may have heard of this ancient Chinese proverb, it takes 10 years to grow a tree, but a lifetime to cultivate a person. Parents are in the very business of cultivating persons for God. Cultivating them to be the men and women that God desires them to be. But it will not happen overnight or without a plan. My question to the parents in the midst here, probably will be majority of us, are, you, are, are we intentional about this? Are we persevering in it? Are we prepared to spend a lifetime cultivating our children for God and with God? I will never forget a lovely scene that I encountered on my very first flight to New Zealand at the beginning of 2015. I was flying by myself ahead of Tara uh, to begin our new chapter of life in New Zealand. And um, I remember the mixed feeling of excitement and, and expectation and a little bit of nervousness and uncertainty. And then about an hour after the takeoff, the family of three sitting in front of me, uh, they took out some books to read that looked like Bibles. And sure enough, it was their Bibles. And I overheard the mother speaking to the 10-year-old-ish daughter in the middle seat, tell her to turn to say an so-and-so book and start her own devotional reading. And so, and then silence dropped. Other passengers were watching movies or playing games on the device. This family is reading Bible and praying together as a family. And I was touched by this sin. I felt a sense of peace through this. Remember the nervousness in my heart? I, ever since I, it became a conviction that regular family devotion time is paramount for nurturing our children, as well as for our marriage, because it's that important. Right? So, um, often, where we spend our time speaks loudly of what our heart really desires and what our real treasure is. We say, particularly on Sundays, that we love God and love our wives and children, but are our actions and life rhythm reflecting this? I know it's not easy at all. Tari and I, we have struggled with this. We have had... We have had our ups and downs in this. I'm, I'm by no means a perfect or even a model parent, father, but it's still a very real struggle for us as a family. And so, all right, finally, my last point. It is the issue of the tension. I want to bring to your attention the issue of the tension between the biblical gospel culture and the cultures we were brought up in or most comfortable with. You see, like many other aspects of living, parenting is a cultural phenomenon. How we parent is usually heavily influenced by our native culture. For us Christians, the million-dollar question to ask is that, are our ways of living, including how we parent, 
shaped more by the biblical gospel culture or by our native culture. And we're going to play a video clip now. I hope that's going to illustrate this point well with a bit of humor. And it's from a show called Kim's Convenience. Has anyone here seen the show Kim's Convenience at all? No, I'm the only one. Okay, I'll give you a bit of background. So Kim's Convenience is a Canadian comedy show dramatizing the lives of the Korean immigrant family, their lives in Toronto, Canada. And interestingly, the main producer of the show is actually a Korean Christian himself grew up as an immigrant kid in Canada. And because it's set in Toronto, the show is full of funny but very insightful observations about the multitude of cultures in the metropolis. Uh, in this clip, Mr. Kim, the Korean father, was chatting with his friend Mr. Mecca, an Indian immigrant who owns a restaurant near Mr. Kim's convenience store. And they were talking about, guess, 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 parenting. And for your information, Mr. Mecca mentions Maharaja. The word Maharaja means an Indian prince. So here's the clip. Hi. What is with the merchandise? Other day, the little kid in the store causing problem, crushing cheap. Oh, at my restaurant, they come in like it is their own living room, wearing capes, Spider-Man pajamas, tripping waiters, throwing chapatis like they are frisbees. And the parents do nothing. When I was a child, I could not even speak in public. Yeah. If I even look at my father, bang! If I forgot to touch my grandmother's feet, swift cricket bat to the backside. One time, I hold a 20-pound English-Korea dictionary over my head uh. outside in a heat wave. If I drop just a one centimeter, bang! Nowadays, children are just tiny maharajas. Very important. Mm. It's better to raise them so they not think they're just so smart not uh, so special, then they're growing up uh, working hard. Hmm? I think we raised our kids the right way, Mr. Kim. Yeah, I think so. So, how your daughter doing? Kim is not speaking to me anymore. You talk to your son lately? <laughs> Thanks. Now, the background with Mr. Kim and his son is that his son walked out home at the age of 16, and Mr. Kim has never talked to him ever since. Now, we don't want to be like that, do we? You see, the, the scene may have exaggerated the stereotypes of the two almost composing or opposing ways of parenting for dramatic effects, for your laughter, which you did, but there is a grain of truth in it alongside the humor. You see, often in the more traditional patriarchal cultures and societies, even today, children are expected to obey their, their parents without question. They have very little freedom, agency, or power. But the parent, and the parents have too much power on the verge of being abusive. On the other hand, in the more, in the more liberal, um, individualistic cultures and societies, when parents don't discipline enough, the children are more susceptible to become disrespectful and wayward. But here's what I want you to hear. Neither of these cultures sit comfortably with the biblical gospel culture. The culture that grace-centered, spirit-filled Christians are called to inhabit. Grace-centered, spirit-filled children will willingly obey and honor their parents in the Lord. Grace-centered, spirit-filled parents will model a living faith, train and instruct the children 
and not misuse their power to exasperate or embitter their children. And grace-centered, spirit-filled Christians will learn to immerse themselves in the biblical gospel culture. They will learn, first and foremost, how to be a faithful citizen of God's kingdom in order to navigate in their own native culture critically. Their lifestyle will reflect much more of God's kingdom value than any cultural value, whether it be Kiwi or South African or Chinese or Chinese or what have you. Do you know why? Because the gospel culture transcends and triumphs and transforms all our cultures. And that's what we are called to do, including our parenting. Let's pray. Lord God, I will thank you for your word. How can we live without your word? There's so much wisdom in it, both grand and theological wisdom, but also practical wisdom as well. But as we come to learn about this particular issue of parenting, we learn a little bit how to navigate in our coaches through the lens of the biblical gospel culture. We cannot do this without the Spirit's prompting. We cannot do this without your help. So help us in our daily walk so we can, as parents, we can model our faith in our children and we can navigate our own coaches wisely and biblically and gospelly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.